0: Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I have for you the final two chapters of part three of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned. Part three, chapter five. Raskolnikov was already entering the apartment. He went in looking as if he was trying with all his might to restrain himself from bursting into laughter again. Following him with a completely disconcerted and ferocious expression, as red as a peony, lanky and clumsy, came the embarrassed Razumikin. His face and entire figure were at that moment really ridiculous and justified Raskolnikov's laughter. Raskolnikov, who had not yet been introduced, bowed to the host, who was standing in the middle of the room looking at them inquisitively. Raskolnikov extended his hand and shook his hosts still apparently with extreme effort to suppress his good cheer and to utter at least two or three words to introduce himself but as soon as he had managed to assume a serious expression and mutter something suddenly as if against his will he looked at Razumakin again and couldn't restrain himself his suppressed laughter broke out again all the more uncontrollably the more he tried to control himself The extraordinary ferocity with which Razumikhin reacted to this genuine laughter lent this scene the appearance of the most sincere merriment and, most importantly, naturalness. Razumikhin, as if on purpose, contributed to this effect. Damn it all, he roared, waving his arm and crashing into a small round table, holding an almost empty glass of tea. Everything went flying and splintering. Of course Alexander the Great was a great hero, But why break the chairs, gentlemen? You're destroying government property, cried Porfiry Petrovich cheerfully. The scene was as follows. Raskolnikov, forgetting that the host was shaking his hand, was still laughing heartily. But having a sense of proportion, he was waiting for an opportunity to this end to end his outburst as soon as possible in the most natural way and positively embarrassed from having knocked over the table and broken the glass, regarded the fragments grimly, spit, and turned abruptly to the window and stood with his back to the others, his face wearing a terrible frown, looking out the window but seeing nothing. Porf- Porfiry Petrovich was laughing and wished to be laughing, but it was too obvious that he needed some sort of explanation. Zamitov had been seated on a chair in the corner He stood up at the guest's arrival and was standing there waiting, his mouth wide open in a smile, but regarding the whole scene in bewilderment and even disbelief, he looked at Raskolnikov with some confusion. Zamatov's unexpected presence struck Raskolnikov unpleasantly. I'll have to take that into consideration, he thought. Excuse us, please, he began with forced embarrassment. For goodness sake, it's a pleasure to meet you, and you entered so pleasantly, too. So then, doesn't he even want to say hello to me? Porfiry Petrovich asked, glancing at Razumikin. So help me God, I don't know why he's so angry with me. All I said to him along the way was that he resembled Romeo, and I proved it. That's all there was to it. Swine, Razumikin blurted out, without turning around. "'He must have had very serious reasons "'for getting so angry with you "'for saying that one little word,' "'said Porfiry with a laugh. "'Oh, you! "'That's the detective speaking. "'Well, to hell with all of you!' Rezumikin cried. "'All of a sudden, now with a cheerful face, "'he burst into laughter himself "'as if nothing had happened "'and went up to Porfiry Petrovich. "'That'll do. "'We're all fools. "'Let's get down to business. "'This is my friend, "'Rodian Bromaniach Raskolnikov.' In the first place, you've heard about him before and wish to make his acquaintance. In the second place, he has a small matter to discuss with you. Bah, Zamatov, why are you here? You know each other, don't you? Since when? What's this all about? wondered Raskolnikov apprehensively. Zamatov seemed a little confused, but not overly so. We met yesterday at your place, he said casually. That means God spared us the trouble. "'Last week he was constantly asking me "'to introduce him to you, Porphyry, "'but I see that you've already sniffed each other out "'without me. "'By the way, where's your snuff?' "'Porphyry Petrovich was dressed informally, "'in a dressing gown, extremely clean linen, "'and well-worn slippers. "'He was about 35 years old, "'shorter than average, portly, even with a paunch. "'He was clean-shaven, without a mustache or side whiskers, "'with closely cropped hair, on his large round head which bulged somewhat prominently at the rear his puffy round somewhat snub-nosed face had a sickly dark yellow pallor but his expression was rather brazen and even sarcastic it could even have been friendly it could even have been friendly had it not been for the look of his eyes with their watery liquid gleam almost covered by white eyelashes twitching as if he were winking at someone The expression of his eyes, somewhat strangely, didn't match his whole figure, which had something womanish about it, and lent it something far more serious than one might expect at first sight. As soon as he heard that his guest had a small matter to discuss with him, Porfiry Petrovich immediately asked him to sit down on the sofa he himself sat at the other end of it and looked intently at his guest with the eager anticipation of hearing an explanation of the business with exaggerated and overly serious attention, which can be oppressive and even confusing at first, especially for strangers, especially if what you're stating in your own opinion is out of proportion to the amount of unusually serious attention it receives. But in short and coherent terms, Raskolnikov clearly and accurately explained his business and was satisfied that he had even managed to take a good look at Porfiry. Not once did Porfiry Petrovich take his eyes off him all during that time. Razumikin, who had taken the seat opposite at the same table, followed the explanation of the matter eagerly and impatiently, constantly glancing from one to the other and back again, which began to seem a bit excessive. Fool. Raskolnikov silently cursed him "You should make a statement to the police," Porfiry replied with the same businesslike expression, "to the effect that having learned about such and such an occurrence, that is about the murder, you re- you request in turn to inform the examining magistrate who is delegated to this case that such and such items belong to you and that you wish to redeem them," or something of the sort. "However, they'll they'll, they'll write it for you." That's just the point. At the present time, I, Raskolnikov tried to appear as embarrassed as he could. I lack the funds and can't even manage such a small expenditure. You see, now I'd merely like to declare that these items are mine. And when I have the funds, then I'll, that doesn't matter, sir, replied Porfiry Petrovich, receiving this explanation of Raskolnikov's finances coldly. However, if you like. You can write directly to me in the same vein that having learned of this occurrence and declaring such and such items, you request that. Do I just write it on plain paper? Raskolnikov hastened to interrupt, once again taking an interest in the financial side of the matter. Oh, the most ordinary paper will do, sir. Porfiry Petrovitch said suddenly and regarded him with apparent mockery, squinting and seeming to wink at him. However, perhaps it only seemed that way to Raskolnikov because it lasted for only a moment. At least something of the sort occurred. Raskolnikov could have sworn that he had winked at him. Only the devil knew why. He knows. He knows, flashed through his mind like a streak of lightning. Excuse me for bothering you with such nonsense, he continued a bit disconcerted. My items are only worth about five rubles, but they're especially dear to me as keepsakes of those from whom I received them. And I confess, as soon as I learned about it, I was very frightened that that's why you became so upset yesterday when I told Zosimov that Porfiry was questioning the people who had pledges, Razumikin inserted with obvious intention. This was unbearable, Raskolnikov couldn't refrain and cast him a vicious glance of rage with his flashing dark eyes. Then he recovered immediately. My friend, you seem to be making fun of me, he said, turning to him with cleverly contrived irritation. I agree that perhaps in your eyes I'm overly concerned about these trifles, but you can't consider me an egoist or a greedy man. In my own view, these two little insignificant things are not trifles at all. I just told you that the silver watch, which is worth very little, is the only object left from my father. You may laugh at me, but my mother's come to visit. He turned to Porphyry suddenly, and if she finds out, he said, quickly turning back to Razumikin, trying hard to make his voice tremble, that this watch has been lost, then I swear she'll be in despair, women. Not at all. I didn't mean that at all. Just the opposite, cried the offended Razumikin. "'Was that all right? Was it natural? Too exaggerated?' Raskolnikov wondered anxiously. "'Why did I say women?' "'Has your mother come to see you?' Porfiry Petrovich inquired for some reason. "'Yes?' "'When was that, sir?' "'Last evening.' Porfiry was silent, as if pondering. "'In any case, your items couldn't possibly be lost,' he continued calmly and coldly. "'I've been waiting for you here for some time.' as if nothing unusual had occurred, he kindly offered an ashtray to Razumikin, who was mercilessly scattering ashes on the rug. Raskolnikov shuddered, but Porfiry seemed not to notice him, all the while concerned only about Razumikin's cigarette. What? Been waiting here? So did you know that he, too, had left pledges Pledges there? cried Razumikin. Porfiry Petrovich addressed Raskolnikov directly. Your two items, the ring and the watch, were in her room wrapped together in a piece of paper on which your name was clearly written in pencil, as well as the day of the month when she had received them from you. How is it you're so observant? Raskolnikov asked clumsily, trying hard to look him in the eye, but he was unable to endure it and suddenly added, I asked only because there was probably many people who pawned things, "'so it must have been difficult for you to recall them all. "'Yet, on the contrary, you remember them all clearly, "'and, and stupid, weak. "'Why did I add that? "'Almost all of them have been identified, "'and you were the only one who'd not yet come forward,' "'replied Porphyry with a barely noticeable shade of mockery. "'I wasn't quite well. "'I heard about that, sir. "'I even heard that you were very disturbed "'about something or other.' Even now you look a bit pale. Not at all. On the contrary, I'm completely well. Raskolnikov replied rudely and angrily, suddenly changing his tone. Malice was seething in him and he was unable to suppress it. If I speak in anger, I'll give myself away, occurred to him again. Why are they tormenting me? He wasn't quite well, Razumikin interjected. What nonsense he's talking. Until yesterday, he was constantly delirious. Well, just think, Porfiry, he could barely stand on his feet. But as soon as we, that is Zosimov and I, let him out of our sight yesterday, he got dressed, slipped out, and was up to some mischief almost until midnight. And all this in total delirium, I can tell you. Can you imagine that? A most extraordinary episode. Really? In total delirium? You don't say. "'Porfiry said, shaking his head "'with some kind of effeminate gesture. "'Hey, that's nonsense, don't believe it. "'But you don't believe him anyway,' "'Raskolnikov blurted out with too much anger. "'Porfiry Petrovich, however, "'seemed not to have heard these strange words. "'How could you have gone out unless you were delirious?' Razumikin asked suddenly, growing heated. "'Why did you go out? "'For what? "'And why in secret? "'Were you in your right mind then?' now that all the dangers passed, I'm saying this directly to you. I was sped up with all of them yesterday, Raskolnikov replied, turning suddenly to Porphyry with an arrogantly challenging smile. I ran away from them to rent an apartment so they wouldn't be able to find me. I grabbed a pile of money to take with me. Mr. Zamatov here even saw the money. So, Mr. Zamatov, was I in my right mind yesterday or delirious? Settle this quarrel. At the moment he would have liked to strangle Zamiatov. he didn't appreciate his look or his silence at all. In my opinion, you spoke extremely rationally and even cleverly. But, sir, you were too irritable, Zamiatov declared dryly. But today, Nikodim Fomich told me, Porfiry Petrovich inserted, that he met you yesterday, very late in the apartment of a certain civil servant who'd been run over by horses. What about that civil servant? Razumikin chimed in. Well, weren't you insane at his apartment? You gave the widow your last rubles for the funeral. So if if you wanted to help, give her fifteen or twenty, but leave yourself at least three rubles, but you handed over all twenty-five. Perhaps I found a treasure somewhere. How do you know? "'I was feeling very generous yesterday. "'Mr. Zamatov knows I've found a treasure. "'Excuse me, please,' he said, "'turning to Porphyry with trembling lips, "'for disturbing you with such trivial nonsense "'for the last half hour. "'You must be sick of us, right?' "'Not at all, sir, quite to the contrary. "'To the contrary. "'If only you knew how you intrigued me. "'It's interesting to see and hear. "'And I, I must confess,' I'm so glad that you finally decided to come. Give me some tea at least. My throat's dry, cried Razumikin. A splendid idea. Perhaps everyone will join you. Would you like something more substantial before we have tea? Go ahead, said Razumikin. Porfiry Petrovitch Petrovich went to order the tea. Thoughts were spinning like a whirlwind in Raskolnikov's head. He was terribly irritated. The main thing is that they don't want to conceal it or stand on ceremony. And if you didn't know me, how was it that you talked to Nicodem Fomitch about me? It must mean that they don't even want to hide the fact that they're following me like a pack of dogs. They spit in my face quite openly. He trembled with rage. Well, go on and beat me, but don't play with me like a cat with a mouse. It's not polite, Porfiry Petrovich. Perhaps I won't allow it, sir. I'll stand up and blurt out the whole truth right in everyone's ugly mug. You see how I despise you. He caught his breath with difficulty, but what if it only seems so to me? What if it's a mirage and I'm mistaken about everything, furious out of inexperience, unable to, unable to keep acting this vile part? Perhaps it's all unintentional. Their words are all so ordinary, but there's something to them one can always say that but there's something to it why did he say in her room why did zamatov add that i spoke cleverly why do they use that tone of voice yes that tone razumigan was sitting here too why didn't it occur to him nothing ever occurs to that innocent blockhead it's the fever again did portafoy wink at me just now or not Do they want to irritate my nerves or tease me? Is it all a mirage, or do they know? Even Zamatov's impertinent. Is he? Zamatov reconsidered overnight. I had a feeling he'd reconsider. He feels at home here, yet he's here for the first time. Porphyry doesn't treat him as a guest and is sitting with his back to him. They came to terms because of me. They were definitely talking about me before we arrived. Do they know I went back to the apartment? I wish they'd get on with it. What I said yesterday—I When I said yesterday I'd gone off to rent an apartment, he, he missed it, didn't catch it. But it was clever of me to bring up the idea of the apartment. It'll be useful later on. Delirious, they say. <laughs> he knows all about last evening, but he didn't know that my mother had come. And that old crone wrote down the date in pencil. You're lying. I won't let you catch me. They still don't have any facts. It's only a mirage. No, give me facts. The apartment's no fact, but delirium. I know what to say to them. Do they know I went back to the apartment? I won't leave until I find out. Why did I come here? But now I'm getting angry, and that just might be a fact. Phew, I'm so irritable. Perhaps that's all right. It's the role of a sick man. He's he's feeling me out. "'He'll try to sidetrack me. "'Why did I come?' "'All this flashed through his head like lightning. "'Porfiry Petrovich returned in a moment. "'He suddenly seemed more cheerful. "'You know, brother, since your party yesterday, "'my heads, I've become so muddled,' "'he said to Razumikin in a completely different tone of voice, "'laughing. "'Well, was it interesting? "'I deserted you yesterday at the most interesting point. "'Who won?' No one, naturally. We moved on to dis- to discuss eternal questions and wound up with our heads in the sky. Just imagine, Rodya, what they were going on about yesterday. Is there such a thing-, thing as crime or not? I told you they were all telling tales. What's so surprising? It's an ordinary social question, Raskolnikov observed distractedly. The question wasn't formulated that way, remarked Porfiry. Not quite, that's true agreed Razumikin at once, hastening and getting excited as usual. You see, Rodian, listen and give your opinion. I'd like to hear it. I did my utmost with them yesterday and was waiting for you. I even told them about you and said you'd come. It all began with the views of the socialists. Their points are well known. Crime is a protest against the abnormal structure of society, and that's that. Nothing else. No further reasons are permitted. Nothing more. That's not true, cried Porfiry Petrovich. He grew visibly more animated and kept laughing, looking at Razumikin, which excited the latter even more. Nothing else is permitted, Razumikin interrupted with passion. I'm telling the truth. I'll show you their books. They say it's all because the environment has ruined them and nothing else. It's their favorite phrase, From there, it follows that if society were to be organized normally, then all crimes would disappear instantly since there'd be no reason to protest and everyone would immediately become righteous. Nature isn't taken into account. Nature's banished. Nature's not allowed According to them, it's not humanity developing historically along a living path to the end, which in and of itself turns into a normal society, but on the contrary, the social system emerging from some mechanical brain that immediately organizes all humanity and in one moment renders it righteous and sinless before any living progress without any historical and living path. That's why they instinctively don't like history. They see only its outrages and its stupidity, and everything's explained only by stupidity. That's why they don't like the living process of life itself. They don't need a living soul. The living soul demands life. The living soul doesn't heed the laws of mechanics. The living soul is suspect. The living soul is reactionary. Even if their social system can be made out of rubber and smells a bit like carrion, it's still not alive. It has no will. It's slavish. It doesn't rebel. And the result is that all their labor goes only to laying bricks and arranging the corridors and rooms in a phalanstery. The phalanstery built, but human nature still isn't ready for the phalanstery. It wants life. It still hasn't completed the living process. It's too early for the cemetery. It's impossible to leap over human nature by means of logic alone logic can anticipate three possibilities but there are millions of them cut off the whole million and reduce everything to a question of comfort that's the simplest solution to the problem it's clearly tempting and one doesn't have to think the main point is there is no need to think the entire secret of life fits on two sheets of printer's paper there's some outburst for you he's beating his drum he needs to be restrained said Porphyry with a laugh. Just imagine, he said, turning to Raskolnikov. That's the way it was last evening. Six voices in one room, and he'd plied them all with a punch beforehand. Can you imagine it? No, brother, you're not telling the truth. The environment plays a large role in crime, I can assure you. I know that it does, but tell me this. A 40-year-old man disgraces a 10-year-old girl. Did the environment compel him to do it? Well, strictly speaking, perhaps it was the environment, Porphyry remarked with astonishing seriousness. A crime against a young girl can very, very often be explained by the environment. Razumikin was absolutely furious. Well, if you like, I'll prove to you, I'll prove to you at once, he roared, that you have white eyelashes only as a result of the fact that Ivan the Great's bell tower is 250 feet tall, and I'll prove it clearly, precisely, progressively. And even with the liberal cast, I'll do it. Do you want to bet? I-, I take the bet, please. Let's hear how he proves it. Damn it all, he's pretending, cried Razumikin, jumping up and waving his arm. Is it even worth talking to you? He's doing all this on purpose, Rodian. You still don't know him. Yesterday, he took their side only to show them up as fools. What didn't he say yesterday, good Lord? And they were so pleased with him. He can hold out like this for two weeks. Last year, he assured us for some reason that he was going to become a monk. For two months, he insisted on it. Not long ago, he tried to convince us that he was getting married and was all ready for the ceremony. He'd even acquired new clothes for the occasion. We started to congratulate him. But there was no bride. Nothing ever happened. It was all a mirage. You're not telling the truth. I acquired new clothes before that. It was because it was because of my new clothes that I decided to fool you all. Are you really such a dissembler? Raskolnikov asked casually. Don't you think so? Just wait, and I'll deceive you too. <laughs> no, don't you see? I'll tell you the whole truth, regardless of all these questions, crimes, environments, and young girls. I now remember, however, it's always interested me. Your little article on crime, or whatever it's called, I forgot the title. I can't recall it. Two months ago, I had the pleasure of reading it in periodical discourses. My article in periodical discourses? Raskolnikov asked in surprise. I did write an article in connection with some book about six months ago when I left university, but I sent it to the weekly discourses, not periodical discourses. It wound up in periodical discourses. Weekly discourses ceased publication which is why it wasn't published there. That's true, sir. When it ceased publication, weekly discourses merged with periodical discourses, and therefore your little article appeared in periodical discourses two months ago. Didn't you know? Raskolnikov really didn't know a thing about it. Good gracious, you can request money from them for your article. But what a temperament you have. You live such an isolated life that you don't even know things that concern you directly. That's a fact, sir. Bravo, Rotka. I didn't know it either, cried Razumakin. I'll run to the reading room today and ask for that issue. Two months ago? What date? I'll find it somehow. That's quite something. And he didn't even tell me. How did you know that it was my article? I signed it only with my initials. I found out accidentally and only a few days ago. From the editor. He's an acquaintance. I was very interested in it. I was examining, if I recall, the psychological state of the criminal during the entire commission of his crime. Yes, sir. And you insisted that the act of committing a crime is always accompanied by illness. It's very, very original, but it wasn't that part of your little article that caught my eye, rather. It was the idea mentioned at the end of the article, which unfortunately you merely touch on by implication, That there exist in the world certain people, as it were, who are able, that is, that they're able, but who have every right to commit any kind of outrages and crimes and that the laws do not apply to them. Raskolnikov smiled at the forced and intentional distortion of his idea. What? What's that? A right to crime? And because the environment ruined them? Razumikhin inquired with some alarm. No, 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 that, that's not exactly why, replied Porphyry. The point is that in his article, all people are divided into ordinary and extraordinary. Ordinary people must live in obedience and do not have the right to overstep the law because, don't you see, they're ordinary. But extraordinary people have the right to commit all sorts of crimes and to overstep precisely because they're extraordinary. That's what you say, it seems, if I'm not mistaken. How's that? "'It can't be like that,' Razumikin muttered in confusion. Raskolnikov smiled again. He understood immediately what the point was and where he was being pushed. He remembered his article. He decided to accept the challenge. "'That's not exactly what I said,' he began simply and modestly. "'However, I confess that you stated it almost correctly, "'even if you like completely correctly.' "'He found it very pleasant to agree that it was completely correct.' The only difference is that I don't insist in any way that extraordinary people absolutely must and are always obligated to commit all sorts of outrages, as you say. It even seems to me that such an article wouldn't be accepted for publication. I merely imply that the extraordinary man has the right, that is, not the official right, but he himself has the right to permit his conscience to overstep various obstacles and only in the case that the execution of his idea, sometimes perhaps one that would benefit all mankind, requires it. You say that my article was unclear. I'm prepared to explain it to you as best I can. Perhaps I'm not mistaken in assuming that you'd like me to, if you please, sir. In my opinion, if the the discoveries of Kepler and Newton could in no way have become known to people other than through the sacrifice of the lives of one, 10, 100, and so on people who interfered with their discoveries or who were obstacles blocking their way, then Newton had the right and was even obligated to eliminate those 10 or 100 people in order to make his discoveries known to all humanity. From this, it in no way follows that Newton had the right to kill anyone and everyone he pleased or to rob people every day at the market. Furthermore, I recall, I developed the idea in my article that all people, at least the lawgivers and trailblazers of humanity, beginning with the ancients, continuing with Lycurgus, the Solons, Mohammeds, Napoleons, and so forth, each and every one of them, They were criminals just by the virtue of the fact that, in propagating new laws, they were at the same time destroying the old laws viewed as sacred by society and handed down by their fathers. Of course, they didn't hesitate even to shed blood if that blood, sometimes completely innocent and valiantly shed in defense of old laws, would help them. It's even noteworthy that a majority of these benefactors and trailblazers of humanity were particularly horrible shedders of blood. In a word, I conclude that everyone, not only the great people, but even those who stand out just slightly from the everyday rut, that is, those who are even marginally capable of uttering some new word, must, by their nature, necessarily be criminals. More or less, it, it goes without saying. Otherwise, it would be difficult for them to break out of the rut. And of course, they can't agree to remain in the rut, again, by their very nature, but in my opinion, they're even obligated not to agree to stay there. In a word, you see that up to this point, there's nothing particularly new in what I say. This has all been written and read a thousand times. Regarding my division of people into ordinary and extraordinary, I I agree that it's somewhat arbitrary, but I'm not insisting on exact numbers. I merely believe in my main idea. It consists precisely in the view that by the laws of nature, people are divided in general into two categories, the lower category, ordinary, that is, so to speak, material serving solely for the purpose of reproducing the species and into people proper, that is, those who possess the gift or talent of uttering some new word in their milieu subdivisions here are naturally endless, but the notable characteristics of both categories are rather distinct. The first category, that is the material, speaking in general, consists of conservative people by nature, well-behaved, who live in obedience like and like being obedient. In my opinion, they're even obligated to be obedient because that's their destiny and there's nothing humiliating about it for them. The second category consists of people who break the law, destroyers, or judging by their abilities, those predisposed to be so. Their crimes, it goes without saying, are relative and diverse. For the most part, in extremely diverse forms, they require the destruction of the present order in the name of something better. But even if it's necessary to step over a corpse to wade through blood in order to attain his goal then, in my opinion, he may, according to his conscience, give himself permission to wade through blood, depending on, however, the nature of his idea and its dimensions. Note that well. Only in that sense do I speak in my article about their right to commit a crime. You'll recall that we began with the legal question. However, there's no cause for alarm. The mass of humanity hardly ever recognizes this right, it punishes these men or hangs them, more or less, and does so with absolute justification, fulfilling its conservative function, although in succeeding generations, the same mass of humanity places those very same people who were executed on a pedestal and worships them, more or less. The first category always comprises men of the present, the second, men of the future. The former preserve the world and increase its population, the latter move the world forward and lead it to its goal. Both have an equal right to exist. In a word, all men have equally strong rights and viva la guerre éternelle until the New Jerusalem, of course. So, you still believe in the New Jerusalem? I do. Raskolnikov replied firmly. While saying this, he stared at the ground as he had done during the entire course of his long tirade, having selected a spot on the rug. And do you believe in God? Forgive me for being so curious. I do, repeated Raskolnikov, raising his eyes to Porphyry's face. And do you believe in the raising of Lazarus? I I do why are you asking these questions? Do you believe in it literally? Literally. I see. Sir, I was merely curious. Forgive me, sir, but if you please, I'll return to the previous subject. They aren't always executed. Some, on the contrary, triumph during their lifetime. Oh yes, some attain their goals in their lifetime. And then? Then they begin executing other people? If necessary, you know, and even the large majority of them do it. In general, your remark is very witty. Thank you, sir. But tell me this How does one distinguish the extraordinary people from the ordinary ones? Are there some special signs at birth? I have in mind that greater accuracy is needed, so to speak, more external distinctness. Excuse the natural discomfort of a practical and well intentioned man, but might it be possible to arrange for them to wear special clothing or to bear some mark? Because you'll agree, if some confusion results in one of the ordinary category imagines that he belongs to the other one and begins to eliminate all obstacles, as you expressed it so fortuitously, well then, oh, this happens very often. This observation of yours is even wittier than your last one. Thank you, sir. Don't mention it, sir. But consider the fact that a mate, consider the fact that a mistake is possible only on the part of those people in the first category, that is the ordinary people, as I call them, perhaps very inauspiciously. In spite of their inborn inclination to obey, by a certain playfulness of nature, not denied even to a cow, and extremely larger numbers of them like to imagine themselves advanced people, destroyers, and they aspire to utter a new word. They do this with absolute sincerity. As a matter of fact, at the same time, they very often fail to notice the genuinely new people and even despise them as backward and incapable of higher thinking. But in my opinion, there can be no real danger here and you have nothing to worry about because these people never get very far. Of course, they can sometimes be beaten for their fervor so as to remind them of their rightful place, but nothing more. You don't even need anyone to carry out the punishment. They'll beat themselves up because they're so well-behaved. Some will provide the service to others, and some will do it to themselves. They impose various public punishments on themselves, and it turns out beautifully and instructively. In a word, you have no need to worry. This is the law. Well, at least on that score, you somewhat reassured me. But here's another concern. Sir, tell me, please... Are there many of these people, the extraordinary ones, who have the right to mow down others? Of course, I'm prepared to bow down before them, but you'll agree it would be terrible if there if there were very many of them, wouldn't it? Oh, don't worry about that either, Raskolnikov continued in the same tone. In general, an unusually small number of people are born, even strangely few with a new idea, or who are capable of even uttering something new. Only one thing is clear. The order that controls the human births, all these categories and subdivisions must be extremely closely and accurately determined by some laws of nature. This law, it goes without saying, is now unknown, but I believe that it exists and may may subsequently become known. The enormous mass of people, the material exists on earth merely at last through some effort, some as yet mysterious process, by means of some crossing of generations and breeds to exert all its strength, and at last to bring into the world at least one person out of a thousand who is it, who is in any way original, perhaps one in 10,000. I'm speaking approximately by the way of illustration, is born with even broader originality, with even more, one one out of a hundred thousand "'Men of genius out of millions, and great geniuses, "'the culmination of humanity, perhaps only as a result "'of the passing of many thousands of millions of people "'across the earth. "'In a word, I haven't looked into the glass retort "'in which all this happens. "'But there absolutely is a definite law, "'and there must be one. "'It can't all be a matter of chance.' "'Are you both joking, or what?' Razumikin exclaimed at last.' You're trying to mislead each other, aren't you? You just sit there mocking one another. Can you be serious, Rodia? Raskolnikov turned his pale, almost sad face to him and made no reply. Porphyry's ostensible, insistent, irritating, and impolite sarcasm seemed strange to Razumikin when compared to his friend's calm, sad face. Well, my friend, if this really is so serious, then of course you're right that none of it's new, and it all resembles everything we've read and heard a thousand times before. But what's really original in all this, and belongs exclusively to you, to my chagrin, is the fact that you sanction bloodshed as a matter of conscience, and excuse me for saying so, even with such fanaticism. That, accordingly, is the main idea of your article, the sanctioning of bloodshed as a matter of conscience. Why, in my opinion, that's more terrible than an official or legal sanction to shed blood. Absolute right. It is more terrible, echoed Porphyry. No, you, you must have gotten carried away somehow. It, it's all a mistake. I'll read it. You were carried away. You can't really think that. I'll read it. You won't find all that in my article. It's only hinted at there, Raskolnikov said. Yes, indeed, said Porphyry, unable to sit still. Now it's almost clear to me how you regard crime, but you must excuse my persistence. I'm really sorry to bother you like this, but don't you see, you've managed to reassure me now about my mistake, confusing your two categories, but it's the various practical cases I still find troubling. Just suppose some person or other, let's say a young man, imagines that he's a Spartan lawgiver like Lycurgus or a prophet like Mohammed a future one, understandably, and let's say that he decides to remove all obstacles blocking his way. A long campaign lies ahead of me, he thinks, and I need money to undertake it, and he starts to amass what he needs for his campaign. You understand? Zabatov, from the corner where he was sitting, suddenly snorted. Raskolnikov didn't even raise his eyes to look at him. I must agree, Raskolnikov replied calmly, that such cases really must exist. Stupid and vain men in particular will swallow the bait. Our young people will especially. So, you do see. Well, what then? What then? Raskolnikov smiled. I'm not to blame for it. That's the way it is and always will be. Just now, he said, nodding at Razumikin, that I sanctioned bloodshed. So what? Society is well provided for with all its exiles and prisons, examining magistrates and hard labor. What's there to worry about? Go look for your thief. Well, and if we find him, then he gets what he deserves. You're so logical. And what about his conscience? What business is that of yours? Just so, out of human kindness. If someone has a conscience, and if he acknowledges his mistake, then let him suffer. That's his punishment. In addition to hard labor, all the real genu- all the real geniuses, Razumikin asked with a frown, those granted the right to kill shouldn't they have to suffer at all, even for the blood they shed? Why use the word should this doesn't involve a question of permission or prohibition. Let him suffer if he pities the victim. Pain and suffering are always obligatory for someone with broad intellect and deep feeling truly great individuals it seems to me must experience great sorrow in this world he added suddenly becoming con- contemplative and no longer in a conversational mode he raised his eyes regarded everyone somberly smiled and picked up his cap now he was much calmer than when he'd first than when he'd first arrived and he felt this everyone stood up well then "'Scold me or not, get angry with me or not, "'but I can't hold back,' Porfiry Petrovich declared again. "'Allow me to pose one more small question. "'I'm still troubling you, I know. "'I want to introduce one tiny little idea of mine, "'merely so as not to forget it.' "'All right?' "'What's your little idea?' Raskolnikov asked, "'serious and pale, standing in front of him in anticipation. "'Here it is. "'Really, I don't know how best to express it.' this little idea of mine is so very playful and psychological. Well, then, when you were composing your little article, could it possibly be the case (laughs) that you might also have considered yourself, even the tiniest bit, to be an extraordinary man uttering some new word in the sense that you're using it? Isn't that so? Very possibly, Raskolnikov replied contemptuously. Razumakin made a movement, and if so, then you yourself have have decided, well, in view of some unfortunate worldly circumstances and constraints, or for the advancement of all mankind in some way, to step over those obstacles, say, for example, to kill and rob. Suddenly Porphyry seemed to wink at him with his left eye again and chuckle inaudibly, just as he had before. If I were to step over, then, of course, I wouldn't tell you, Raskolnikov replied with arrogant, provocative contempt. No, indeed, it's just that I'm interested strictly in clarifying the meaning of your article, merely in a literary sense, of course. Ah, this is so obvious and insolent, Raskolnikov thought with disgust. Allow me to observe, he replied dryly, that I don't consider myself a Mohammed or a Napoleon or anyone of that sort. Therefore, not being one of them, I can't possibly provide you with a satisfactory explanation of how I would act if I were. Well, come, come now, who among us and Holy Ruth doesn't consider himself a Napoleon these days? Porphyry suddenly asked with alarming familiarity. This time, there was even something unusually distinctive in his intonation. Part three, chapter six. I don't believe it. I can't believe it, a perplexed Razumikin repeated, trying with all his might to refute Raskolnikov's conclusions. They were already near in Bakaleev's house where, in their rented rooms, Pulcheria, Alexandrovna and Dunya had been waiting for them for quite a while. Razumikin frequently paused along the way, impelled by the heat of the conversation, confused and agitated solely by the fact that it was the first time they had spoken plainly about that. They don't believe it, replied Raskolnikov with a cold, calm grin. As usual, you didn't notice anything while I was weighing every word. You're mistrustful. That's why you weighed every word. Hmm. Really, I agree that Porphyry's tone was rather strange, and especially that scoundrel Zamitov, You're right, there was something in it, but why? Why? He changed his mind overnight. On the contrary, the contrary. If they'd had that brainless idea, they'd have tried with all their might to conceal it and hide their cards so they could catch you afterward. But now, it's insolent and careless." If they really had any facts, that is genuine facts, or some kind of well-founded suspicions, they'd really have tried to conceal the game in the hope of winning even more. But they'd have conducted a search long ago. However, they don't have any facts, not one. It's all a mirage. It cuts two ways, merely a passing fancy, and they're trying to use insolence to confuse the matter. Perhaps Porphyry's angry that there are no facts, and so he burst out with all that. Perhaps he has some intention. He seems to be a clever man. Maybe he wanted to frighten me by showing me that he knows. There is psychology for you, my friend. However, it's hard to have to explain all this. Leave it alone. It's insulting. Insulting. I understand you, but now, since we've begun talking openly and it's excellent that we've begun. I'm glad. Now I can confess to you, frankly, that I noticed this idea of theirs a while ago. All this time, it goes without saying, merely as a hint, a creeping suspicion. But why on earth should they have even a creeping suspicion? How dare they? Where, where are the roots hidden? If you only knew how angry I was. What, just because you're a poor student, disfigured by poverty and hypochondria, on the brink of a cruel illness and delirium, which might already have begun, make a note of that, you're mistrustful, proud, knowing your own worth. You've spent six months all alone, seeing no one, wearing tattered clothes and boots without soles, standing in front of some policemen, tolerating their abuse, and then you're confronted with an unexpected debt, An overdue promissory note to the court counselor, Chebarov, stinking paint, hundred-degree heat, stifling air, a crowd of people, an account of the murder of a person where you'd been the day before, and all this on an empty stomach. How could you keep from fainting? And to base it all on that? On that? To hell with it. I understand how annoying it is, but in your place, Rodka, I'd have burst out laughing in their faces, or better still... I'd have spat right in their ugly mugs, the thicker the better, and have landed a few dozen slaps on all of them, skillfully as one always should, and that would be the end of it. To hell with them. Take heart. What a disgrace. He did a good job laying it all out, thought Raskolnikov. To hell with them. But there's an interrogation tomorrow as well, he said bitterly. Do I really have to explain it all to them? I'm annoyed that I humiliated myself with Zamatov in the tavern yesterday. To hell with it. I, I'll go see Porphyry myself. We're related, so I'll squeeze it out of him. Let him explain the root of the matter. And as for Zamatov, he's finally guessed, thought Raskolnikov. Wait, cried Razumikin, suddenly seizing him by the shoulder. Stop. You're wrong. I, I've just thought it through. You're wrong. What sort of a dirty trick was it? You say the question about the workers was a dirty trick. See it through. If you'd done that, would you let it slip that you saw the workmen painting the apartment? On the contrary, you wouldn't have seen anything. And even if you really had seen it, you—you you, who would testify against himself? If I had done that deed, then I would have definitely said that I saw the painters and the apartment. Raskolnikov continued, stating his reply unwillingly and with apparent disgust. But why testify against yourself? Because only peasants and the most inexperienced novices flatly deny everything during interrogations. A person who's somewhat intelligent and experienced tries as much as possible to admit readily to all external and inevitable facts. He merely looks for other reasons, introduces his own particular and unexpected aspect, which lends them a different significance and reveals them in a completely new light. Porphyry could count on my answering like that and saying what I saw to establish credibility. Then I'd bring up something to explain. But he would have told you immediately that the workman couldn't have been there two days before. Consequently, you were there precisely on the day of the murder, after seven o'clock. He'd have caught you with a detail. That's exactly what he was counting on, the fact that I couldn't have had time to think and that I'd hasten to reply more plausibly and would forget that the workman couldn't have been there two days before. How could you forget that? Easy as pie. Clever people get tripped up most easily on just such insignificant details. The cleverer a person is, the less he suspects that he'll be tricked by something so simple. You have to trick the cleverest person with the simplest matter. Porphyry isn't as stupid as you think at all but after this, he's a scoundrel. Raskolnikov couldn't keep from laughing, but at the same moment, his own animation and the enthusiasm with which he had laid out the last explanation seemed strange to him since he had conducted the entire previous conversation with grim disgust, apparently for his own aims and of necessity. I'm beginning to enjoy certain aspects of this, he thought to himself. But at almost the same time, he suddenly felt strangely upset, as if an unexpected and alarming thought had struck him. His anxiety increased. They had arrived at the entrance of Bekaleev's house. Go in alone, said Raskolnikov suddenly. I'll be back shortly. Where are you going? We've just arrived. I really have to. I, I have to do something. I'll be back in half an hour. Tell them. As you like. I'll go with you. Really? do you want? Do you also want to torment me to death? He cried with such bitter irritation, with such a despairing look, that Razumikin gave up. He stood on the stairs for some time and watched grimly as his friend walked off quickly in the direction of his street. At last, clenching his teeth and tightening his fists, swearing that he'd squeeze Porfiry Petrovich like a lemon that very day, He climbed the stairs to try to relieve Bulkaria Alexandrovna, who was already feeling anxious because of their long absence. When Raskolnikov arrived at his building, his temples were damp with sweat, and he was breathing heavily. He quickly climbed the stairs, entered his unlocked room, and immediately fastened the door with the hook. Then, in a fearful, frantic manner, he rushed to the corner, to the very same hole underneath the wallpaper where he had stashed the items, dressed in his hand, and for several minutes searched the opening carefully, examining every nook and cranny and all the folds of the wallpaper. Not finding anything, he stood up and took a deep breath. As he had been approaching Bakaleev's house a while ago, he suddenly imagined that some item, some small chain, cufflink, or even the paper in which the items were wrapped, with the old woman's marks on it, might somehow have slid down and gotten lost in the little crack, and then might suddenly emerge before him as unexpected and incontrovertible evidence. He stood as if lost in thought, and a strange, humble, half vacant grin crossed his lips. At last he picked up his cap and quietly left the room. His thoughts were muddled. He was still preoccupied as he emerged from the gate. There he is, that's him, cried a loud voice. He raised his head. The caretaker was standing at the door of his little room and pointing him out to a small man who looked like a tradesman dressed in a vest and some sort of long robe and who from a distance very much resembled a peasant woman his head in a soiled cap hung down, and his entire figure seemed stooped. His flabby, wrinkled face indicated that he was over fifty years old. His small, swollen eyes looked grim, stern, and discontented. What is it? asked Raskolnikov, approaching the caretaker. The tradesman squinted at him suddenly and examined him fixedly and carefully, without hurrying, then he turned away slowly and, without saying a word, walked through the gate and into the street. What's all this? cried Raskolnikov. That man was asking if a student lived here. He gave your name and asked whose room you rented. Then you came out, I pointed to you, and he went on his way. That's all. The caretaker was also a bit perplexed, but not too. He thought a little longer. "'turned around and went back into his room. "'Raskolnikov rushed after the tradesman "'and saw him right away walking along the other side of the street "'at his previous steady and unhurried pace, "'his eyes lowered to the ground as if thinking about something. "'He soon caught up with him and for some time walked along behind him. "'At last he came even with him and glanced into his face from alongside. "'The man noticed him right away.' looked at him quickly but lowered his eyes once more they continued walking thus for another minute one next to the other without exchanging a word you were asking the caretaker about me Raskolnikov said at last but somehow in a low voice the tradesman made no reply and didn't even look up they were silent again why did you come and ask for me and now you're silent. Mm. What's this all about? Raskolnikov's voice broke off as if the words were unwilling to be uttered clearly. This time the tradesman raised his eyes and regard- and regarded Raskolnikov with a sinister, gloomy look. Moiterer, he said suddenly, in a low but clear, intelligible voice. Raskolnikov walked along next to him. His legs suddenly felt weak, and a chill ran up his spine. For a moment, His heart skipped a beat, but then it started pounding as if it had come loose. They continued that way for about a hundred paces, once again in silence. The tradesman didn't look at him. What are you talking about? What? Who's the murderer? muttered Raskolnikov barely audibly. You're the murderer he said even more distinctly and commandingly, with a grin of contemptuous triumph, and once more glanced directly at Raskolnikov's pale face and into his lifeless eyes. They both approached the crossing. The tradesman turned into the street on the left and kept going without looking back. Raskolnikov stood still for a long time and watched him go. He saw how the tradesman walked about fifty paces, then turned around and looked at him, remaining motionless on the same spot. It was impossible to make it out, but it seemed to Raskolnikov that this time he smiled again with a cold, contemptuous, triumphant grin. With faint, weak steps, trembling knees, and a terrible chill, Raskolnikov turned back and climbed the stairs to his little room. He took off his cap, put it on the table, and stood still for about ten minutes, Then, feeling feeble, he lay down on the sofa and stretched out painfully with a weak groan. His eyes were closed. He lay there for half an hour. He didn't think about anything. There were some thoughts or fragments of thoughts, some images, disordered and unconnected, faces of people he had seen way back in his childhood or encountered somewhere only once and couldn't even remember where the bell tower of the Bonasensky church, the billiard table in a tavern with some officer standing next to it, the smell of cigars in a basement, tobacco shop, a beer hall, a back staircase, completely dark, splattered with dirty dishwater and strewn with eggshells, and the sound of Sunday church bells floating in from somewhere. Objects shifted and swirled like a whirlwind, "'He even found some things pleasant "'and tried to hold on to them, but they faded. "'In general, something oppressed him outside, "'but not too much. "'Sometimes he even felt good. "'The slight chill hadn't passed, "'but that too was almost pleasant to experience. "'He heard Razumekin's hurried steps and his voice. "'He closed his eyes and pretended to be asleep. "'Razumekin opened the door "'and stood on the threshold for some time "'as if in thought.' Then he quietly stepped into the room and cautiously approached the sofa. He could hear Natasya's whisper. Don't disturb him. Let him have a good sleep. Then he'll have something to eat. Indeed, re- replied Razumikin. They both left quietly and closed the door. Another half hour passed. Raskolnikov opened his eyes and lay back again, clasping his hands behind his head. Who is he? "'Who's that person that emerged from under the earth? "'Where was he, and what did he see? "'He saw everything, no doubt. "'Where was he standing then, and how could he see? "'Why is he appearing only now from under the ground? "'How could he have seen? "'Is it possible?' "'Hmm,' continued Raskolnikov, growing cold and shuddering. "'At the jeweler's case that Nikolai found behind the door, "'was that also possible?' Evidence? You overlook one of a million details, and there's evidence the size of an Egyptian pyramid. A fly passed by, and it saw. Is this all possible? While loathing, he suddenly felt how weak he had grown, physically weak. I should have known all this, he thought with a bitter grin, knowing myself, having had a premonition about myself. How did I dare take an axe and get stained with blood? I should have known ahead of time. Eh, I really did know beforehand, he whispered in despair. No, those people aren't made like this. A true master to whom all things are permitted destroys Toulon, carries out carnage in Paris, forgets an army in Egypt, loses half a million men in Moscow in a Moscow campaign, and gets away with a clever pun at Vilna. And then, after his death, they erect statues to him. It goes without saying that everything is permitted to him. No, clearly such men are not made of flesh and blood, but of bronze. All of a sudden, an unexpected extraneous thought almost made him laugh. Napoleon, the pyramids, Waterloo, and a scraggly vile widow, an old woman, a moneylender with a red trunk under her bed. What a mouthful, even for Porfiry Petrovich to swallow. How could he do it? His sense of aesthetics would interfere. Would a Napoleon stoop to crawl under an old woman's bed? Hey, what nonsense! At times he felt that he was raving. He would sink into a mood of feverish excitement. That old crone is rubbish, he thought heatedly and impetuously. The old woman was no more than a mistake. She wasn't the point. The old woman was merely an illness. I wanted to hurry up and overstep. I didn't kill a person. I killed a principal. A principal is what I killed, but I didn't step over at all. I remained on this side. The only thing that I managed to do was kill, and it turns out I didn't even do that right. A principal? Why did that fool and abuse the socialists a while ago? They're hard working folk, business like people contributing to the common good. No. Life's been given to me once and it'll never come again. I don't want to wait for the common good. I want to live myself or else it's better not to live at all. What of it? I merely didn't want to pass a hungry mother clutching a ruble in my pocket while waiting for the common good. They say, I'll carry one small brick for universal happiness and as a result, I'll fill my heart at peace. (laughs) Why did you leave me out? I only live once and I also want to... Hey, I'm an aesthetic louse, nothing more, he added suddenly and burst out laughing like a madman. Yes, I'm really a louse, he continued, clinging to his thought with malice, burrowing into it, playing with it, enjoying it. If only because in the first place, I'm now thinking about the fact that I'm a louse. Secondly, for a whole month, I've been pestering most gracious providence, summoning it, as a witness that I'm undertaking this not only for my own sake and whims, I said, but because I have a majestic and worthwhile goal. (laughs) And in the third place, because I propose to observe all possible fairness in the execution, weights and measures and arithmetic. Out of all the lice on earth, I picked the least useful and, after killing her, proposed to take from her exactly as much as I needed for the first step. No more no less, and the remainder, it goes without saying, would go to a monastery, including to the terms of her, according to the terms of her will. (laughs) Therefore, therefore, ultimately, I'm a louse, he added, grinding his teeth, because I myself perhaps am even viler and filthier than that murdered louse, and I had a premonition earlier that I'd say that to myself after I killed her. Can anything compare with such horror? Oh, the vulgarity, the baseness. Oh, how I understand the prophet with the scimitar on on a steed. Allah commands and trembling creatures obey. The prophet was correct, completely correct, when he placed a wonderful artillery battery across the street somewhere and mowed down the innocent and the guilty without deigning to explain himself. Obey, trembling creature, and do not desire because... That's not your business. Oh, never will I forgive that old woman. His hair was soaked with perspiration. His trembling lips were parched, his motionless gaze directed at the ceiling. My mother, my sister, how I love them. Why do I hate them now? Yes, I hate them. I physically hate them. I can't stand to have them near me. A while ago, I went up and kissed my mother. I remember to embrace her and think that if she knew, then could I really have told her then? I'm capable of that. Hmm. she should be the same as I am, he added, thinking with effort as if struggling with approaching delirium. How, how I hate that old woman now. It seems I'd kill her again if she came back to life. Poor Lizaveta, why did she turn up there? It's strange, however, why do I hardly think about her as if I hadn't killed her? Lizaveta, Sonia, Poor meek creatures with meek eyes. Dear souls, why don't they weep? Why don't they moan? They give away everything. They look meekly and softly. Sonia, Sonia, gentle Sonia. He drifted into sleep. It seemed strange to him that he didn't remember how he turned up on the street. It was already late evening. Twilight was growing deeper. The full moon was shining more and more brightly, but the air was somehow very stuffy. Crowds of people were walking along the streets. Craftsmen and workers were returning home. Others out for a stroll. The air smelled of lime, dust, and stagnant water. Raskolnikov was gloomy and anxious. He remembered very well that he had left home with some intention, that he had something to do, and that he should hurry, but he had forgotten what it was. Suddenly he stopped and noticed that on the other side of the street On the sidewalk stood a man waving to him. He crossed the street toward him, but suddenly this man turned and walked away as if nothing had happened, his head lowered, without turning around or giving any sign that he had waved. Enough of this! Did he wave? wondered Raskolnikov and began following him. Before going ten paces, he suddenly recognized him and became frightened. It was the former tradesman wearing the same robe and with the same stoop. Raskolnikov walked along at a distance, his heart pounding. They headed into an alley. The tradesman still didn't turn around. Does he know that I'm following him? wondered Raskolnikov. The tradesman went through the gate to a large house. Raskolnikov approached the gate and began looking. Would he glance back and beckon to him? Indeed, The tradesman suddenly turned around and seemed to beckon to him again. Raskolnikov passed through the gateway too, but the tradesman was no longer in the courtyard. He must have turned at once into the first stairway. Raskolnikov rushed after him, and back two flights above, he heard someone's measured, unhurried footsteps. It was strange, but this staircase seemed familiar. There was a window on the first floor. Moonlight was shining through the glass mournfully and mysteriously. Here's the second floor. Oh, it was the same apartment in which the painters had been working. How come he hadn't known that right away? The footsteps of the man ahead died away. He must have stopped or else he's hiding somewhere. Here's the third floor. Should he go on? How quiet it was, even frightening. But he walked on. The sound of his own footsteps scared and alarmed him. Good Lord, it's so dark. The tradesman must be hiding in some corner. Ah, the door to the apartment stood open onto the landing. He thought for a bit and then went in. It was very dark and deserted in the entryway. There was not a soul, as if everything had been removed. Quietly, on tiptoe, he went into the living room. The entire room was brightly lit by moonlight Everything was just as it had been before. Chairs, mirror, yellow sofa, and framed pictures. The huge, round, copper-red moon shone directly in through the windows. The stillness is because of the moon, thought Raskolnikov. It must be posing a riddle now. He stood there and waited, waited a long time. The quieter the moon, the louder his heart pounded, even beginning to hurt. Stillness prevailed. All of a sudden, he heard a momentary dry crackling as if a twig had been broken, and then everything became silent again. An awakened fly suddenly bumped into the windowpane and began buzzing plaintively. At that very moment in the corner, between the small wardrobe and the window, he noticed what seemed to be a cloak hanging on the wall. Why is there a cloak here? He wondered. It wasn't there before. He approached it quietly and guessed that someone might be hiding behind it. He cautiously drew back the cloak with his hand and saw a chair on which the old woman sat, all huddled over, holding her head in such a way that he couldn't see her face. But it was she. He stood over her. She's afraid, he thought, and quietly freed the axe from its loop and struck the old woman on the crown of her head once and then again but it was strange. She didn't even stir under the blows as if she were made of wood. He grew fearful, bent over and began looking at her more closely. She bent her head even lower. Then he crouched all the way down to the floor and glanced up at her face. He took one look and froze in horror. The old woman was sitting there laughing. She was overcome with quiet, inaudible laughter, trying with all her might to make sure he didn't hear her. Suddenly, it seemed that the door to her bedroom was opening slightly, and there, too, someone was laughing and whispering. Rage overcame him. He began striking the old woman on the head with all his strength. But with each blow of the axe, The laughter and whispering from the bedroom sounded stronger and louder, and the old woman shook with mirth. He tried to flee, but the entire entryway was filled with people. The door to the staircase was open, and on the landing, the staircase and below, stood a crowd of people, side by side, everyone looking but everyone quiet, all waiting, all silent. His heart skipped a beat. His feet wouldn't budge and he felt rooted to the spot. He tried to cry out and woke up. He took a deep breath, but strangely, his dream seemed to continue. His door was wide open, and a complete stranger stood on the threshold, staring at him fixedly. Raskolnikov had not quite opened his eyes completely when he shut them again. He lay on his back and didn't stir. Is this still my dream or not? he wondered and opened his eyelids ever so slightly to take a look. The stranger stood on the same spot and was still staring at him. All at once, he carefully stepped over the threshold, closed the door behind himself thoughtfully, walked over to the table, waited a minute, all this time not taking his eyes off Raskolnikov, and quickly, without a sound, sat down on a chair next to the sofa. He placed his hat to one side, on the floor, and, and rested both of his hands on his cane, lowering his chin to his hands. It was apparent that he was prepared to wait a long time. As much as Raskolnikov could see through his eyelashes, this man was no longer young. He was solidly built and had a thick light colored, almost white beard. About 10 minutes passed, it was still light, but evening was already setting in It was absolutely still in the room. Not a sound was drifting in, even from the staircase. Only a large fly kept buzzing and beating against the windowpane. At last, this became unbearable. Raskolnikov suddenly raised himself and sat up on the sofa. Well, say something. What do you want? I knew that you weren't asleep, but merely pretending, the stranger replied, peculiarly grinning serenely. Allow me to introduce myself, Arkady Ivanovich Spitrigalov That brings us to the end of part three of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment here at Carla Reads the Classics. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the reading. Until next time.